Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. What with the return of the radical right to Spain such a hot topic in the news right now, I've invited Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, professor at Texas State University and senior fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, to provide details and historical context to the situation. So Louis, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so I thought that we could start with a bit of historical situation uh, background before we get into the situation right now. So I think the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the radical right in Spain is the Franco dictatorship, which ruled the country from 1939 to 1975. But do you think that we really can associate the terms uh, radical right with the Franco dictatorship, or, or to what extent do those two match up? I think absolutely. By definition, radical right means that you have to have done something radical. And starting a civil war, by default, is about as radical as it can get. It's a destruction of an entire government. So. I think that there might be discussions about the later regime and what ways was it radical, mm-hmm. but at its birth it has to be radical. It's a civil war. In terms of their policies, uh, do we see, again, a radical shift from what came before? When we talk about sort of uh, the radical right, I, I like to talk about first sort of the situation. Sometimes it's a discussion of, well, In Spain, there might not have been the sort of concentration camps for Jewish people. But if you look a little further back in Spanish history, there was an expulsion of Jews uh, about 500 years before, right? Right. And so while those specific uh, elements of, we'll say, anti-Semitism that's present in Nazism are not as uh, underlined in the Franco case, you also have to consider sort of the longer durée, Mm -hmm. right? It's not necessarily that those things have changed necessarily. It's that historical situations made it so that that was not necessarily as big of an issue. And I think if we're talking about the radical right today uh, or fascism in general, it's a question of usually they're seeking some sort of purity. Usually they're seeking some sort of idealized past that they want to go back to. Mm -hmm. And usually there is a group or groups of people that don't fit their definition of this purity that need to be eliminated in some way. And whether you're talking about immigrants or you're talking about Jews in Nazi Germany, it still talks about this sort of idea that that they want to have a pure nation, a pure group. And so in that sense, it hasn't changed very much. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Franco regime was doing uh, as well. Right, right. Just in a more political way. Right. In Uh, the political way, so when I think about the Franco regime, so you don't have the same same attacks against Jewish people. There are fewer Jewish people. uh, But you do have sort of an attack on leftism. Mm -hmm. And you do have an attack on queer people. You do have sort of those groups that are targeted as other that don't fit into the regime's definition of what a perfect Spaniard should be. As we get into late 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, that's kind of the classic period of the transition to democracy in Spain. And I think the usual narrative is kind of this this far-right thinking in Spain kind of died with the Franco dictatorship. But 
Do we see vestiges of that kind of ideology survive even in the transition period and beyond? Oh, absolutely. One thing that I write about in my uh, first book is about fascist groups that were in Madrid going after kids who were at bars that played music. And there was one bar that was on the Calle Libertad uh, that was called the Baqueria. It used to be an old uh, milk place. And it it had a dirt floor. Kids would go there, mostly in their 20s, maybe early 30s, and they would listen to music, uh, rock music. They would go listen to poetry. It was sort of a center for uh, counterculture in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And that place, uh, the Bacaria, was bombed using plastic explosives by a group of people um, who were the Guerreros de Cristo Rey, who were essentially this group of far-right youth. They weren't necessarily attached to the fascist party, but they did have this tendency to attack people who were progressive. Mm -hmm. They were known for attacking uh, the Café Gijón. They were known for going to places where progressive-minded people were and doing actual violence. And so one of the things that when we talk about the peaceful transition to the democracy, not everybody was on board, and there were some people who were violent even. If we're talking about the relationship between the democracy in Spain and the far right, we've, the the narrative, at least up until the past couple of years, was that you didn't really see uh, a far right in Spain, even into the 2000s, as you started to see that kind of reemerge in some other countries like France, for example. So could you tell us a little bit more about that interpretation and how that might be complicated a little as well? I was doing some big data analysis recently. I collected every uh, European election vote since basically the transition, right? And seeing how many people were actually voting for far-right parties. Uh, both uh, locally and also uh, for the European community at the time. And one of the things that you see in the early 80s is that this vote is usually about 2% at most. And by the time you're into the 2000s, it's less than uh, 1% of people actually voting for the far right. So we can say that the actual voters were not voting for these parties. But that doesn't mean that they weren't incorporated into other right-wing or right parties. So when we think about the move from in the 80s to the Partido Popular, it was slower, right? You have the Alianza first, and then you sort of have this move toward consolidation of right-wing or right party. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's bringing in as many people as possible. And under a normal democratic system, that's fine. But what we didn't realize probably and wasn't as easy to see in the voting data is that some of those people who are voting for the Pepe uh, were not necessarily the Democrats or the democratically minded folk. It was the alternative option that they had, right? If you right. want to affect change, sometimes you use the vehicle that's most effective for that change. And if you're voting with the Falange, 
which did exist up and and still uh, di- uh, existed in the seventies and continued to exist today, right? Mm-hmm. You might not be able to flex as much power, and so I think that what we're starting to realize is that a lot of the more right wing parties partisans ended up going into the Pepe, and when this crisis came up um, more recently with the crisis that the Pepe has been having since at least 2013, there's a good chunk of people who were in the Pepe that were more right than center-right. Okay, great. So we'll take a pause and uh, then we'll look a little bit more at this kind of re-emergence of the radical right in Spain in the last few years. Okay, welcome back. So we've talked a little bit about kind of the different changes that have taken place in the far right in Spain over the last several decades. But uh, what about the last couple of years? What kind of uh, events have kind of changed the scene in Spain very recently? I think a couple things that I would want to point out first is the economic crisis, right? That's been, it's been written about by a lot of people, and we all know that economic hardships cause anxiety in people. And once you have anxiety, you start to look around and look for somebody to blame for your economic situation. So oftentimes that will turn toward an idea of against the elites, right? It also might be against intellectuals who might not necessarily offer always the most practical solutions to your life and also it's a fear of your job being taken by someone else and we've seen this not just in Spain but in France in the United States and a lot of other countries where there's a fear of immigrants who are also looking for jobs right because of economic instabilities in their own homes and so one way that I think we can think about this is we've got a situation that's rife for people to be more reactionary and looking for a solution. And it's very understandable given that uh, people aren't necessarily making as much money as they should be. Their labor isn't valued. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking about mileuristas in Spain for more than a decade now, right? People who make a thousand euros or less a month. So when this sort of thing becomes normalized, you look for solutions. How do you deal with that? You might try to see if there's somebody that you can blame. And I think that's sort of the fertilizer for a lot of what we've started to see happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the primary things is it's groups that had been uh, previously marginalized. So uh, the Falange, which had been basically minimalized in the last 
40 years, right? It didn't have any real political party, uh, power. But what's starting to happen is in the last year, um, they've organized with Alternative for Spain. They've started organizing with uh, Democracia Nacional, which is another sort of uh, far-right party. And they've been working with other fringe groups to create coalitions. And in doing this, they're using the rhetoric that's pretty prominent in just mainstream right-wing circles. They're uh, against the idea of Europe. They're against this idea of uh, immigration. They're against the minimalization of the church within the nation, right? Mm -hmm. Which also goes to issues of abortion and queer uh, relationships or marriage. All of these types of things, I think, have really been shifts, dramatic shifts in the ways that uh, people who were previously marginalized have come to a position of acceptance at the very least, right? I'm not going to say equality, but more acceptance. Yeah. And I think that's caused a sort of backlash. And I think that's a lot of the motivation. So it's economic. It's about religion. It's about you looking around and seeing some sort of change that you're not happy with. How are some of the these parties like the Falange and other far-right groups, uh, how are they seeking to get people to join these movements, which seem to be, at the end of the day, kind of repeating a lot of the uh, same policy positions that, that we've seen from these kind of parties for decades? So the Falange's new coalition is called ADN, uh, which... Uh, using magic, the, it's short for uh, Identidad Española, and also they call themselves Ante Todo España. And they have this rhetoric that they start off a conversation whenever they have their meetings. They'll say, they'll have a woman usually come up, and she'll talk about how uh, she loves to go to bars, how she loves to be with her family, she likes paella, like all these very typical things mm -hmm. that make people feel that her ideas are normal, right? She's just another person. This strategy of normalization is both happening in some uh, groups that are more radical, like the Falange, but also in Box, which has been attempting to build up a discourse that makes it normalized. So, for example, if you were to look at... Um, Newspaper articles prior to, uh, prior to December 2018. In El País, there were about 800 and some odd articles that were published about books. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at ABC, it was about 1,600. Wow. So you can see this sort of variation in the ways that it's become normalized in just saying that this is something that we are covering and part of normal discourse. And I think that's the main strategy is how do you make these far-right ideologies normal conversation points. And I think that it happens because of the internet. For example, oftentimes these groups or people who would have been more fringe uh, in the past would be isolated. They would not necessarily be able to tell their neighbor they're, uh, they are a fascist or that they're a white nationalist or what have you. Mm -hmm. But now because of the internet, People are able to see themselves and other people like them through the online um, digital imagined communities. 
So they're able to see themselves as part of a collective. And know that they're not the only ones. And they're ones. not alone, <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and, but I think that this idea of uh, kind of the normalization is very important because I know that that's one that we've been facing in the United States as well because for the mainstream media outlets, how do you try and provide some sort of neutral coverage even for these these groups that maybe don't seem to have the kind of you know legitimacy that they that they might but it sounds like the spanish media has really been because of the sort of sensational sensationalism of a party like folks they've, they've actually gotten more press right. than they normally would well and i think that even happened in the u.s um, yeah especially around 2016 you see people like richard spencer being featured in the atlantic Right. Mm-hmm. You see articles in the New York Times about really fringe people and fringe ideologies. And there is a sensationalism to it. But at the same time, there are ideas that are being circulated. So it's kind of hard to say, Are the uh, is it just the media that's doing this? Um, yes, they're a big part of it. But also it's social media, right, which is in some ways just as easy for a regular person from the street to be able to get an idea out that gets retweeted, that gets uh, circulated amongst these groups, and points to YouTube videos that cover these ideas. Some channels with people from the radical right get millions of views. And so that's even outside of regular media. So I think it really is tied to sort of changes in technology and the ability for distribution and also media playing into this sort of we want to capitalize on getting a couple more clicks, right? Right, So it's both of these things at the same time. We'll take uh, another short break here and then we'll look at a bit of the implications of these new developments and how they might connect with the history uh, in the past of Spain as well. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the re- recent de- developments in terms of the far right in the last couple of years uh, in Spain, but do you see any links between these recent developments and the kind of longer history of the far right going back to the Franco period, for instance? I think that one of the things that's become more obvious is that uh, fascism as an ideology never disappeared. I think for a long time, probably for our best, uh, maybe best wishes, we bracketed fascism off as sort of this thing that ended with World War II and everything afterward couldn't be fascism because we learned our lesson. And I think by not talking about sort of the ways in which those ideologies continued forward, or maybe the ways that coded language developed afterward Mm -hmm. to hide those ideologies, we've missed sort of the opportunity to more actively engage people in the history of fascism, to understand 
what it was and what was dangerous about it. And I think that we started to see this a little bit in the 1960s, um, primarily with what was known as the New Right uh, that came out of a school in Paris, uh, School of Thought in Paris, that um, is now known as sort of the intellectual center of the far right, where they think of themselves as identitarians uh, instead of fascists. So you are interested in your, you're only interested in your an identity, right? You're not interested in white nationalism or ethnic cleansing. You're interested in your homeland, your identity. You're part of the new right. You're not fascist. And I think that so many of those types of code words developed after World War II that we were less likely to call them fascist. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we ended up getting people who were Holocaust deniers. That's how we ended up getting people who were very adamantly trying to bring these discourses back to the forefront and popularizing them. And because we were wanting to maybe respect the memory of the Holocaust, and we didn't want to make that sort of comparison because it's something that was so tragic, so horrible, that to actually compare an ideology today to that was seemingly impossible. And I think that's sort of what has happened popularly. And I think that those ideologies are still seeping through and have been soaking for a very long time in kerosene. And now we're watching it go uh, light up, right? Basically what you're talking about is almost another kind of pact of silence that that we've seen in Europe. Uh, You know, we talk about that in Spain regards to the Spanish Civil War, but now, of course, the Civil War gets talked about more, but um, in terms of the Spain's experience of fascism and what the legacies of that are, maybe that's something people don't, right. don't talk about as much. For the longest time in Spain, there was this discourse that uh, the later Francoism was definitely not fascist. Right, right. And early Francoism may be a little bit fascist, but not that much, because the Falange got consolidated into... Um, national Catholic uh, ideology, right? It was minimalized and taken out of power. But in reality, if we look at somebody as simple as Pilar Primo de Rivera, who was in power, in charge of a governmental organization longer than Franco himself, yeah, like up until 1977, then we can say, oh, wait, the sister of the founder of the Falange was in charge of the women's section for decades, right? Mm -hmm. That means she had influence over education. That means she had influence over public policy. Whole speeches that she wrote were published in newspapers, right? So fascism existed in certain parts of the government full force. Uh, Maybe several historians um, in the past sort of minimalized it because she was a woman. And, but as we know, if she's influencing possibly half the population at very least who are also women who are connected to men right then she is affecting the entirety of the spanish population mm-hmm. students uh, grew up in spain under franco would go to class and they would see her brother jose antonio in the classroom they would go to their textbooks and there would be a nice little section about him They would have to do these ritualistic pledges and songs all the time, right? 
how do we how how is it the historians I don't understand I'm still trying to figure this out how is it the historians were able to say that Francoism wasn't fascist mm-hmm. national Catholic right that national part being important <laughs> right right how about the people who are in these uh, far right groups now how do are they using any of the imagery and trying to link it all to uh, the fascism that was in Spain's past, or are they just distancing themselves from that? So what oftentimes these groups do is they talk less about Franco and more about Jose Antonio, so he gets sort of the forefront. What you do see is sort of a rhetoric around the Reconquista, for example. That's something that is at the forefront of a lot of this. I was Mm -hmm. at a meeting at the of the Falange in May and one of the first things that they talked about was on this day uh, in I can't remember if it was 1100 something the battle in somewhere in the Rioja a very minor probably skirmish if anything there was a moment in which the Reconquista was in full front and they kept referring to these very esoteric probably had nothing to do with an idea of a real Reconquista, but just like a battle that happened. And there's this idea that they've been using to say that we need to have a Reconquista of Europe. And this isn't just happening in Spain, but uh, also certain groups in, um, for example, Generation Identity UK, which is a youth far-right group, they have on their website a call for a Reconquista. (laughs) And they're British, right? And wow. that sort of rhetoric is all over the place. They also There's a lot of rhetoric around El Cid, for example, uh, and his role in all of this. Uh, El Cid was a mercenary who worked for both uh, Muslims and Christians, whoever would pay him. But under Franco, he was turned into this um, symbol of the uh, uh, Reconquista mm-hmm. and sort of the symbol of Ur-Spanishness. And that symbol has started to come up again. Um, in fact, even in the around in the mid two thousands, there was a, a neo Nazi slash skinhead group in Burgos, where uh, there's also a very famous statue to El Cid that people um, in these far right groups would go pilgrimage to, and have ritualistic acts. But and this sounds ridiculous, but at the same time. Burgos also has a whole week dedicated to El Cid, a festival. Oh, yeah. So it's not that strange when you put it into context mm-hmm. of just what the city does for tourist tourism, right? And so it's one of those things where all of these types of uh, ways of recalling history, they're not far from what the general public understands history to be, too. Right. Many of which I think were shaped by the Francoist interpretations, which everyone learned for 40 years. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And I think that's um, something we've yet to really reconcile. Insofar as uh, Spain, you know, is kind of still facing that legacy of the of the Franco regime, it makes it a particularly interesting case for for studying uh, the radical right. But do you notice other similarities or differences when we look at the radical right in Spain versus other European countries that have been in the news recently, uh, like France, for example, or or even Hungary, where we've actually seen one of these groups 
take power. In Spain, the situation's a little better. Um, same in Germany, it's a little better, but there's been flare-ups. There have been politicians in Germany who have been killed by far-right groups. Right. There is an upswing all over Europe and the United States especially. Mm-hmm. And I think that the sooner that we start calling these types of actions or abuses of history out, we'll be able to better understand sort of how to quell the problem a bit. I, w- I think one way to s- make a comparison is in France, the Front National, uh, which had been founded post-World War II, had really been marginal, is now uh, rebranded itself. It's called National Rally. Every so often, I don't know when it, like the exact day, mm-hmm. but the party leader, uh, Marie Le Pen, she visits a statue of Joan of Arc and gives a big speech there, sort of placing herself in the shadow of Joan of Arc. And I think one of the things that we see comparatively is that all of these types of groups rely on this imagined idea of the, his- of the history of their country, but it's a very imagined idea, right? It's right. decontextualized. And I think that that's one way that we can really think about how all of these groups are recalling something that really never was there, it's imagined, mm-hmm. but they're using it to legitimate their actions or their beliefs now. And for, and for these beliefs that are so strongly nationalist, it makes sense that you would go back to this imagined past to kind of bring, right. build that up. Right. Like Joan of Arc um, would not recognize the world that we live in today. Right. right. If you were to plop her into the middle of the 21st century, she would be confused. <laughs> El Thief as well, right? All of these are sort of nationalist characters almost, mythologized, and they're being re- uh, reappropriated by the far right as sort of, we've lost this ideal. We've lost um, this way of being, and we need to make our country great again. Right, right. Yeah, but at the end of the day, that does seem to be the principal message for all of them. So um, I know, you know, as a historian, it's always, we're accustomed to talking about the past, but um, just to kind of conclude, do you have any uh, predictions about the, f- the future of this new trend that we're seeing? Do you, do you see these movements continuing to grow, or, or do you think that there is going to be a kind of a pushback as people become more aware of this, what's going on? One of the things I always say, and this is kind of uh, lighthearted, but I wish my crystal ball was here, but I forgot <laughs> it uh, back at the, the office, so don't really know what the future holds. Uh-huh. But I think that we can at least say that the far right never disappeared, right? And so my guess is that it's not going to disappear just yet. I would say that I'm heartened by the fact that I see people willing to start to call a spade a spade, Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good step to being able to address this. I've been doing work with the Council for European Studies at Columbia University on creating a critical European studies research network in which uh, people who are students or people who are faculty members, anyone interested in the study of Europe can be more critically engaged in ways of teaching a more inclusive, diverse, accurate depiction of European history. 
One example I like to give is uh, Generation Identity, which I mentioned earlier, the British-based group, has this image of a Spartan logo. And they also, uh, Generation Identity has branches in, in Spain, in France, and other countries as well. Um, Austria um, has a big branch there. But they use the symbol of a Spartan lambda symbol. And one of the things that I always think to myself is, would they use that Spartan lambda symbol if they understood how gay ancient <laughs> Greece really was and ancient Rome, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, they probably wouldn't, right? So they've sort of appropriated this thing out of the past, given it a new meaning. But I think that the more that people are able to say, well, actually, um, we can talk about different ways of understanding sexuality in uh, the classical period. We can talk about different ways that gender roles played out in the early modern period with people like um, Catalina de Arauzo, known as the lieutenant nun, who uh, cut off their hair uh, as a teenager and lived life as a man, as a soldier in the Spanish army. Uh, right? Like This mm-hmm. is, this is a, a different way of thinking about sort of how do we change the ways that people understand history, using history. Um, Catalina de Arauzo, she, uh, at the age of 15 or 16, cuts off her hair, becomes a man, lives as a man, and eventually gets permission from both the king of Spain and the pope to live that way. If we start talking about things like this as part of a normal way of understanding history, Mm-hmm. Then people who are learning history, I, I, my my faith, my hope is younger people who come up and learn uh, a more diverse way of understanding history, more multifaceted way, they're going to be more inoculated to this sort of ideology. Right. Absolutely. So perhaps we can uh, post a link to your project on the podcast website as well. That would be great. Yes. Okay, that great. would be excellent. So thank you so much for coming on the program, Louis. Uh, I think this has not only been very informative, connecting a current issue to the past, but it's also very encouraging to to end on a on a hopeful note <laughs> in terms I'm, of informing people. I'm a hopeless optimist. <laughs> um, total optimist. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.